Hey, it's Alana, and you're back for another episode of Black and Yellow Solo Cast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the cast. Welcome back to this Black and Yellow Nation. If you're a new listener, welcome and thank you for sharing a bit of your day and time with me. Feel free to just kick back, relax, and subscribe so you never miss a future episode. I would love to keep connecting with you. And if you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back in this fun loving space talking to you once again. So today's episode is going to be a little bit of a deviation from typical episodes because one, I'm solo casting today, but two, I've been thinking um, as the population gets vaccinated and the world begins to open up little by little more and more each day. That does depend on where you live. But here in California, it feels like every day there's a, a little bit more light coming through the opening. I have been thinking a lot about people living with long haul COVID-19. So over the past year, I've had a couple of loved ones contract and then kick COVID all to varying degrees. Some have bounced back and don't seem to have any lingering symptoms. So I will say they've made a full recovery, whatever that means by COVID standards. Others have lingering symptoms that have led to good, bad, and everything in between kinds of days. Some friends are dealing with varying energy levels and are not able to have long conversations and so are therefore communicating more via text and email. Some are dealing with paranoia and or really intense fogginess and body heaviness. Some are dealing with getting their sense of taste back finally after not having it for so long, but everything tastes like shit. Yeah, I know. These symptoms vary, and it feels like we're still learning about new symptoms more and more each day. I feel important to note that at the time of this recording, there's been a total of 32.2 million COVID-19 cases in the U.S., with 573,000 cases being fatal. Worldwide, there have been about 149 million cases and 3.14 million deaths. So what these numbers tell me is that there is a large swath of our population that may be living with long-haul COVID who deserve to be supported empathetically and compassionately as they learn to live with long-haul COVID-19, which is now clinically known as PASC, P-A-S-C, which stands for Post-Acute Sequel of SARS-CoV-2. So, This conversation is going to be a two-parter because I really wanted to talk to two medical professionals about how we, as thoughtful, humanitarian, considerate citizens, can best support our loved ones who are living with the effects of long-haul COVID-19. So today we have a fantastic guest on. She's a psychotherapist who works with individuals with chronic illness. And next week, I'm talking to a medical doctor who has done extensive work studying chronic fatigue syndromes. And so the goal here of these two episodes is to help those of us who are not living with PASC or long-term COVID-19 to understand on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level what those who are living with PASC are going through and how we can best support them. Today's conversation is 
awesome. I am so excited for you all to listen to it. But first, let me put my money where my mouth is. So if you're a new listener, this is the segment that I want to encourage you to diversify your dollars, shop black owned, shop Asian owned, And I've got two great companies for you. So the first is an African-American female-owned company. It's called Brio Geo. It was started by Nancy Twine. She is the fabulous founder. And Brio Geo is a best-selling plant-based hair care brand. And it's available at major retailers like Sephora, Nordstrom's, on their website and more. It's a refreshing deviation from a market saturated with products backed by big name celebrity stylists and deep pocketed corporations because Brio Geo just takes it back to basics. It offers high performance hair care collections that is naturally based yet performance driven to provide visible results. Full disclosure. I discovered this brand during a treat show self day that I recently had where I treated myself to an online shopping spree at Sephora. I am a new user of the line, but so far I love what I have used and I will keep you updated as I keep trying and testing products. My Asian American owned company, it's called Julia Vaughn. It's a jewelry company. I love my jewelry and I specifically have a new obsession with this particular line. It's contemporary costume jewelry made in the heart of Orange County. So if you are a listener in California uh, and you love jewelry and are looking to add some to the jewelry box, check out Julia Vaughn. Uh, I've been lusting after Julia's jewelry for, I would say, a good year or two now because of its vintage or vintage-inspired statement jewelry at an affordable price point. Her baubles are like the perfect addition to any wardrobe for a healthy dose of cool girl swag. And I would say that her chains are probably my favorite thing on her website because they're perfect for layering. They can also be wrapped around your wrist if you want to do like a long bracelet situation in a pinch. They can be worn day to night and are sure to induce envy and compliments. So basically, it's like the perfect pieces of jewelry that you're going to want to keep wearing over and over and over. They go from special occasion to every day. I think what I'm trying to say is this jewelry is dope. I think what I'm really trying to say is after I finish recording this episode, I'll probably be going jewelry shopping. Uh, Brio Geo and Julia Vaughn. I will drop both links to these businesses in show notes. Go check them out if you need to treat yourself or just, you know, do a little shopping therapy because ugh, the pandemic is still happening. But with all of that said, let's get to today's interview. Today's guest is awesome. I'm so excited for you guys to hear our conversation. Her name is Lauren Selfridge, and she is a psychotherapist, creative vision consultant, and podcaster. What up, podcast fam? She has her own psychotherapy practice, Lauren Selfridge Psychotherapy. She uses a variety of tools and approaches in her practice, and one of her main focuses when working with clients is to help her clients develop compassionate self-awareness. Who does not need a little bit more of that? She's a registered associate marriage and family therapist. She has an MA in integral counseling psychology and an MED in social justice education. 
She is also the host of a wonderfully heartfelt weekly podcast called This Is Not What I Ordered. And it's a podcast on full-hearted living with chronic illness and health challenges. And if she wasn't busy enough, she's also the author of the Creative Joy Workbook. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. Without further ado, Lauren, I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Lauren, I am very excited for this conversation. Welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be sitting with you today. So why don't we start out by having you tell our audience a little bit more about the work that you do? Sure. So I'm a psychotherapist and my practice is based in the state of California. So I work with people all over the state, both couples. I love helping couples strengthen their relationships. And I work with primarily adult women living with chronic illness of some sort. And in addition to that, I also am a consultant uh, working with entrepreneurs and creators and leaders in living more fulfilling and joyful lives. Awesome. I am very excited for this conversation. As I was saying off mic, um, I haven't been nervous for an interview in a while, uh, talking racism and sexism. <laughs> I can do that all day. This is a conversation that is scaring me a little bit, which means we've got to have it. Um, and I'd like to start generally and then move into long haul COVID specifically, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to say, as I did off mic, that I love that you are making space to talk about chronic illness because that's the that's the main thing that's needed for the conversation. You don't have to come in knowing all the things. Just your curiosity is the big thing. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Sometimes it does feel like we have to know all the things. So thank you for the reassurance. Yeah, that yeah absolutely. Yeah, we're learning in real time here. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> in fact, I don't well, know all the things either. And sorry, I think there's a little bit of a lag. Say that one more time. I think there's a little bit of a lag, but it's just like an internet thing. I think you are right. Sorry, let me take this time code down. 155 to 205. Okay, cool. So let's let's talk generally about chronic illness because it's a it's a thing that's happening in the United States. And I feel like it just shouldn't be with as much money is that is in this country with the medical care attention technology that is out there. I just feel like chronic illness in this country should not be as rampant as it is, but it is a pretty widespread thing that a lot of people are dealing with both old and young. So I wanted to know if you could start off by talking a little bit about what chronic illness is, what constitutes a chronic illness, and then what should we be uh, aware of when when it comes to people who are living with chronic illness? Sure. Yeah. And, and I love that idea or vision of just eradicating chronic illness. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think there are a lot of people who are on board with that. And, and the thing about it is, so chronic illness is really any consistent or persistent health challenge. I shouldn't say consistent because it's all over the place. You know, you find people with, with conditions that present various ways over their the course of their lives. But um, so I live with multiple sclerosis and it is, it's just this kind of, uh, mine is a relapsing condition. So I'll, I'll go through periods of remission and then 
you know, then there will be some potential disease activity sometime in the future. We don't know when that's going to happen, if it happens. Got it. So I will say that um, chronic illness is something that's actually probably more common than most of us realize because it's stigmatized. And so many people just don't talk about it. Um, so, so in a way, and I don't know the statistic, but I think the last time I looked up, you know, how many people in the U.S. have a chronic incurable health condition? And it was over 40%, I believe. And I'll be yes, honest, I just think, and I'm not in charge of, of the rules, but my guess is it's probably even higher than that. And I think at least half of our population probably has some kind of oh, chronic condition. Wow. Okay. Okay. So this is as, as pertinent a, a conversation that we need to have as ever, because if I'm hearing you correctly... The silence means that pe that doesn't mean that people uh, who aren't talking about it aren't living with it. We just don't have a safety net for them to feel comfortable enough to come out and talk about it because our society writ large isn't really educated when it comes to talking to and about those who are living with chronic illness. Is that? Yeah, I think as a whole. Yeah. And I, I also want to give a lot of credit to the people who are speaking about it. And I think yes. I'll just say from my personal perspective that when I was first diagnosed with MS, I was, it was actually a month after I had started seeing clients for the first time. So it was like wow. really bad timing, although there's no good timing for chronic illness. <laughs> um, but I actually waited a few years before even revealing to clients what my diagnosis was. Like if I needed okay. to, I'd say, Hey, I have a health thing going on, but I didn't want to talk about it. And then I, over time started to integrate it in my life and, and, and identify with this weird illness that at first I was like, what the heck is this? And what I actually found was that it was super liberating. Once I became, I wouldn't even say like I was comfortable, like, oh, this is easy, but more just comfortable talking about it. Mm. When I see my clients now, it's actually, it's, it's, it's normalizing to just say, oh yeah, it's multiple sclerosis. It's not, a, it doesn't have to be a secret private issue. And, and I, and I don't, um, blame anyone for making it private because it's their prerogative. And sure. I love I, this, if this makes sense. I love normalizing chronic illness because it's like, oh yeah, you have a thing too. Okay. Yeah. And I've met so many friends that way. Yes. It's a great unifier. I would imagine it's a great bonder when you know that you, you have a brother or sister or individual who's going through something that's similar to what you're going through. It's yes. like, you don't have to talk about it or you don't have to hide it. The weight is gone and you can actually just live the normal life with this chronic illness as you want. Yes. And actually, so I didn't mention this earlier, but I also have a podcast about chronic illness. It's about full hearted living. Yes, it's called This Is Not What I Ordered. And it, it the whole intention behind creating it was to just kind of bring people's voices in. And I interview a new person in every episode. And the guest I'm thinking about right now is uh, Romina Pacheco, who talked about her, her thyroidectomy because she had um, cancer. So she had a thyroidectomy. And, she, okay. and so there's this scar on your neck that you get when you go through cool. that kind of surgery. Yeah, cool. Because she, I mean cool for her because she kind of reclaimed it in a way that she actually was able to visually see other people who had had the same scar. Ooh. So, you know, imagine going to a coffee shop and it's like, Oh my gosh, we have the same, we have the same scar. Yeah. And you know, there's this bond. Definitely. It's a battle wound for sure. And like the yeah. truest sense. Of it. Yeah. I, um, 
I went to college with a girl who had severe burns over, I want to say like a fourth of her body. And I remember a similar, they, she was in the tech major. Another girl came in with very similar burn marks and they went to go get tattoos over the burn marks together. It was like a, yeah, it was a very cool sort of bonding. Like, look, we have these burn marks. The world is going to see them. We're going to put something on top of these burn marks because if you're going to look anyways and question or just look, stare, we want you to look at something really cool and wear those burns as a badge of honor. And I always thought that was a really awesome way of bonding with someone. That's so beautiful. And I think, I mean, the the theme for me that comes up so much under the concept of chronic illness, as well as health challenges, because not all health challenges, of course, are chronic illness, like in the example, you know, your friend, that we have, we are on this earth, to put it simply, we have bodies. And while we're here, our bodies go through shit. <laughs> our bodies go through a lot. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, most people have been sick. You know, if, if anything, we can relate on that level. Everybody's had some or has had yeah. some kind of injury, right? And so, and the bummer is mm. that you, you have to live through the experience, the physical experience that your body's going through but your body's also the reason that you're here. So it's a wonderful thing, but it's also really crummy sometimes because it's like, man, this is really uncomfortable. How, how am I going to yeah. live through whatever challenges my body's going through? So it's sort of a deeper spiritual conversation. And I love that conversation. Definitely. I, I would want to back you up one second. Uh, for people who, who don't know, I'm one of these people. Can you talk about the difference between a, a chronic illness and a long-term health challenge? Sure. Yeah. So a chronic illness is usually, and specifically the word illness, right, um, refers to like a condition, a disease, a syndrome. And then a health challenge could be like, I got in a motorcycle accident, which I didn't, by the way, if somebody did, right? Ah. My, you know, my shoulder acts up sometimes, or I have, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of other, there's all different other kinds of health challenges that aren't illness related. Got it. Okay. Understood. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page there. Yeah. Can I ask how, how does chronic illness affect society? Like our economy, uh, healthcare systems, future generations. I know that's a big, broad question, but it's gotta, it's gotta affect our society in some way. Yeah, it does. And I think we could have like a whole series. We could have a whole podcast just dedicated to this topic. And, and I think because <laughs> it's, it, it certainly impacts our society. And of course, money comes up because it can be really expensive to treat some of these conditions. Um, some people aren't able to work or maybe not work as much as they would want to because of health conditions. Um, and then it affects relationships in pretty big ways. And as a therapist, I see that both romantic partnerships as well as family friend relationships and that's actually what I love talking about and 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 also why I love doing the, the podcast the chronic illness podcast is because we talk about those emotional things that come up that we might not expect both for the individual mm -hmm. living with the body that has the illness as well as the people that are close to them yeah ooh well let's talk about Let's talk about having these conversations and let's talk about emotions for a second, because pandemic or no pandemic, these conversations are really difficult to have. 
Um, talking to family and friends and loved ones who are experiencing chronic illness or long-term health challenges, disabilities or injuries, these conversations can be really challenging and vulnerable and uncomfortable. And there's no script or handbook of how to have these conversations well. So is there any way that you could give us a bit of a, a verbal roadmap of some, some or some suggestions for how to handle these conversations? Well, one of the things is actually something that really that you just did earlier in our conversation, which is you were transparent and you were like, hey, I'm a little nervous about this. Right. Which immediately I feel connected to you on a human level because we're being real. Right. And yeah. And I. Yeah. You know, there's there are limits to how real, you know, we don't want to tell everybody every last fear or thought on our mind. Right. It's not about you have to disclose everything. Right. But it's really more about saying I'm imperfect. I don't know all the answers. And then immediately what shows up for me is like, oh, my gosh, I'm imperfect, too. I don't know all the answers either. Okay, we can connect on that. So, (laughs) yes, totally. Yeah. So when it comes to talking about health conditions, it's important to know that everybody has their own kind of window of availability to talk about it or desire. And maybe a better word for it would be like a mm. spectrum where some people are loud and proud. They use the word I'm disabled. Some people hate that word, but are also loud and proud. And we use a different term. There are people who are on the other end of the spectrum who are like, you know what? I'm not even going to tell anybody about this. I know people who have their spouse doesn't even know that they have a chronic illness. And I, you know, it's like you get to choose, you get to choose disclosure. I personally recommend, especially as a couples therapist, I'm like, definitely tell your spouse only because (laughs) I think your life could be really (laughs) awesome when you team up with your spouse. Um, But, but then there's like, most of us are somewhere on the middle where it's like, sometimes we want to talk about it. And sometimes we don't. And with some people, we want to talk about it. And some people we don't. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of tips, I would say if you have a loved one who is living with a chronic illness, I think being real with them and just letting them know that you're even thinking about it can actually go a long way. So for a lot of people, I think we will, um, and even me, I have a chronic illness and you know, I don't want to always be grilling the people in my life about like, what's it like for you with chronic illness? Tell me, what was it like this morning? Right. <laughs> but, but with some people I can yeah. do that because that's the rapport that we've built. So understanding that, you know, I want to be sensitive to what's going on for them and let them know, you know, I'll say as a person with chronic illness, sometimes I would feel hurt when I was never asked about what it was like living with MS because it felt like people were trying to ignore it and just move on. And I'm like, hello, this is still a thing, even though it's invisible. Yes, totally. Okay. Well, can I, uh, you know what, Lauren, I'm feeling very seen in this moment. I felt seen in the Huffington Post article that you were quoted in, which is, which is why you're here. It was, yes. It feels like Lauren is a fly on the wall as I'm reading this conversation and she is calling me in, in the best possible way. And this is a really good example of that because I would be that person that's like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to come across as, you know, like, ah, and in the same way that I started this podcast, because I hate when people are nervous about talking about race, I'm very nervous about talking about illness or, and, or long-term health challenges. And I would be the person that you're describing how, yeah. 
what would you say to me slash the person who's like, I hear you, Lauren. I, I understand everything you're saying. I don't want to minimize what you're going through. I don't want you to feel as though I don't see you and, and the chronic illness that you're living with, but I'm just racked with this fear and I don't know how to push through. Help me. Yeah. What I would say is like, ask questions and not rapid fire, but really just try start with one question and then and then just see what happens, how the conversation evolves. And a lot of it has to do with preference. So even if you're just asking about like, what's your preference in terms of how much you even want to talk about this with me? Because I'm available, oh, but I don't want to push you. I love that. I never thought about that as an as a question, as a thing to ask a friend who is living with a chronic illness or a health challenge. And I've got a couple of them. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's why they pay you the big bucks. That's brilliant. That's Thank right. You, so much you know, for- <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because in the beginning of my, when I was being trained as a therapist, we all go through something called supervision, which is actually a few years we spend with a mentor who's a seasoned therapist. And I remember going to my, my mentor sometimes, but she was my supervisor and saying, I said this thing to a client, but I don't know if it affected them in this way or in that way, or if they even noticed, or if maybe they're uncomfortable or maybe they feel relieved or maybe they, and she would just look at me and smile and say, or you could just ask your client, what was that like for you? And I was like, Oh, I don't have to read my client's mind. (laughs) But it's so human to go through that Rolodex of, of caring human questions, but yeah. Sometimes it's just better to ask the shortcut question. Yes. And in all spectrums and factors of life. It's it's so helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to reverse the question that I just asked you, because what if you are someone who is living with a chronic illness or a long-term health challenge, and you know that you have to have the conversation with your loved ones, with your spouse, with your employer, and you're not quite sure of the best way to go about it. What would be the advice that you would give to that person? Well, first, I would say it's so important to check in with your gut in terms of what you want to disclose and reveal. So for some people, um, employment might be at stake. And as much as I believe that ableism shouldn't exist, uh, it does. And there are laws in place to protect people, but they don't always protect you when you, you know, if you can't prove that there's some kind of bias going on at the workplace. So there, there are so many reasons to not want to disclose, including ableism in friendships and out in public and, you know, all these different places. I think for a lot of people yeah. with romantics, you know, dating and partnership and all of that. So I just want to start by saying, if you ever feel anxious to disclose, it's not your fault. You didn't create that dynamic the same way that, um, you know, anybody with any form of oppression may feel concern for revealing something. Um, And there's also a privilege that goes along with having an invisible disability because, you know, it's not like race, which isn't always visible, but can most of the time be. Um, And so, so there's, yeah, I just want to add that it's, it's like sexuality for a lot of people or, you know, there's some invisible identities that we can hold and then get to decide whether or not to have those conversations. Ooh, a privilege of an invisible identity. That's a really interesting wording for that. Cause I've, I've heard about the concept of like 
having an invisible disability and, and feeling like they like someone who is living with it has to constantly explain it or like society might question. Yeah. And that's and those are some of the downsides of having an yeah. invisible disability. Mm-hmm. Like I know a lot of people will use the phrase just out of love and concern. They'll be like, oh, I hope you feel better soon. Right. That's what we say when somebody's sick. And I've talked to people who have said, you know, I really wish my friends would stop saying that to me. And, and, and it's only because it's just a different, it's a different way of living when the chicken soup and the bed rest aren't going to be what get you there. And it's just going to be a lifelong thing, right? Or a multi-year thing. We don't know. And so, (laughs) so yes, I mean, this is like, there's this whole nuanced conversation we could have about the benefits and drawbacks of having an invisible disability, the benefits and drawbacks of having a visible disability, which I don't know about personally, but have certainly sat with enough people who have shared with me. And to come back to your question of what, what advice do I have for people about how to talk about illness? I think to me, and I'll just, I'll just say, look, I'm biased because I'm me and this is the way I see the world. But when we talk to someone about our condition, I think what's more important than the details of the condition is we're actually revealing our own relationship with our condition or our bodies. Meaning when I talk to people about MS, I really want, one of my favorite questions I want my friends to ask me is how is MS impacting your spirituality or how is MS impacting your mood or how is MS impacting the way that you relate to yourself? Like I could talk all day about those questions. Um, so I think one piece of advice I'd have for folks with a health challenge is tell your friends what you would love for them to ask you so that they don't have to guess or wonder. And then you get to enjoy the conversations more. Yeah. Take autonomy over that conversation. I love that. Ooh. Okay. Love this. Can we switch gears to long haul COVID specifically? Sure. Because it's so new. We're still learning about what long haul COVID or PASC symptoms are. Some people uh, got COVID and made a full recovery and have bounced back, no symptoms. Some people are living with symptoms every day. Some, some symptoms are on and off. And the symptoms feel like every day there's a new symptom of sorts that we're learning about. How can we best support and love our friends, our loved ones who are living with long haul COVID uh, with compassion and with empathy. I love that you're asking that question. And I know that's why we're doing this episode is how can we support? I mean, this is, I think for many conditions, um, or I should put this a different way and say this particular condition is one that is rocking our entire world and that we have seen in the media. We've, it's impacted our daily lives for over a year It's something that we all have been a part of in some way, whether we've experienced COVID in our bodies or not. And Mm -hmm. for folks who have the long haul version of COVID, and I forget what the clinical name is. Do you remember the name? Yes, it is. Let me pull it up here. You can be the expert. (laughs) It's PASC, P-A-S-C is the uh, acronym, and it stands for post-acute sequel of SARS-CoV-2 or PASC. Yes. Yeah. PASC. So 
with with living with any new health condition, it can be a shock. And and I think a big part of the shock is that we relate to our bodies in a certain way, especially if we haven't really lived with much in terms of health challenges for the, you know, for most of our lives. Yes. It can be a shock. It can be yes. very disorienting. And it is not only a physical, but also an emotional experience. So as a therapist, I'm always reminding myself and others about, oh, there's an emotional thing going on here, even if it seems like it's just a physical thing. That mm -hmm. when, when, just like if your friend was going through any hard thing, it's so important to, to bring that curiosity, empathy, care, and, and just being a rock for your buddies and your loved ones in saying, I am here. I'm here for the highs and I'm here for the lows and you don't have to be anything in order to be worthy of my love. And that's huge permission to anybody who's going through a health thing. Cause probably for the next few years, at least, and we don't know what the trajectory of the illness is, yeah. but for at least the first few years of anybody's new diagnosis, there's an integration period going on where we don't know all the answers. We don't know how we feel about it. Sometimes we do know how we feel. Sometimes that changes. And it's like a roller coaster, just like anything, just like a grief process would be. Can you talk more about the integration process? Uh, I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of there's a large swath of our population that is dealing with long haul COVID. And I think because it is such a new long term health challenge. Or would it be a chronic illness? Which which category would it fall into? Chronic illness. Chronic illness. Yeah. Um, because it is so new, you know, there's support groups are just starting. Things like outreach groups are just starting for people who are who are living with long haul COVID. And so even just finding the support can be difficult. And the emotional and physical component, if your immediate family unit or your loved ones are not experiencing what you're experiencing, there's deep feelings of loneliness and isolation there. Yeah. Um, I just lost my train of thought, but I will get back on well, and say, what you're right on. <laughs> <So far. laughs> oh, I, I remember the integration process. Tell us, talk to us more about what the integration process is and what you mean by that. So integration is when we're able to take many elements of who we are and see ourselves as a whole and allow for ourselves to be multifaceted beings. Mm. And part of that's about with integration. If you think about if you're making a cake and you add, uh, you know, an egg into the flour, right. Or I don't know if you're a cake maker and you're listening to this, you're like, you don't add an egg. And you know, I don't know if I did that right. Maybe you, maybe you don't, you're adding the egg maybe you add the flour to the yeah. egg. Yeah there's a new ingredient, right? <laughs> and at first it's like sitting on top of this pile of flour and it's separate. Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like for me, at least. And I know for many, when you get this new information, I have this illness now, or I have this injury or I have whatever's going on with the body and it's new that what happens is we, we see it as separate because it sort of is. And then we start to mix the cake batter and we start to incorporate it into our lives. Now that could be, we experiment with saying, I have this illness out loud for the first time. It could be, we look in the mirror and look into our own eyes and say, oh, look, it's you. You're the same you that you've always mm -hmm. been. It's just now you have this thing. 
or maybe we have our first time like doing a little dance party in our living room while living with the thing. And we get to see, okay, my spirit is its own thing. It remains untouched by circumstances in life, right? Spirit is that one thing. That's my belief at least. But that we also understand that we're these human bodies that are experiencing breakups and new friendships and illness and jobs and job loss and all of those circumstances. And that those are part of our kind of task while we're on this earth as to like, how do we live with this? So integration is a lifelong process. It's something that allows us to move in and out of identifying with something or not in bringing it into our lives. Maybe part of our relationship with an illness could be that we reject it. There could be some denial. There could be an embracing of it. And that could all be within the same person. So you're, it's Yeah, because what you're saying is life goes on even with, in this particular uh, instance, long-haul COVID, life still tracks on, and it's now about living with long-haul COVID as life continues to go. But you're still the whole and complete person that you were before. You just now have this chronic illness that you're dealing with, but you don't want yes. to be the illness. You, you want to be the whole and complete person who's living with this illness. Am I getting right. that right? And it's it's also like, we don't want to spiritually high jump over any of these things the same way we wouldn't want to say like, oh, like I'm spiritually like, yes, I'm white, but spiritually I like don't have a race, right? Like that's not quite right either, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is true. I mean, sure. Like nobody has a spiritual identity with any of the, you know, but, or yes. maybe they do, but, but there, but it's sort of like, we can't, we have you ever heard the phrase, you're not a human being having a spiritual experience, you're a spiritual being having a human experience? No, I've never heard that before. That's my explosion noise wow. for my brain. So that's a mic I drop think, or a record scratch. Love that. I mean, we, are, we are getting into, I think if you asked a hundred people about you know, is the spirit the same thing? You know, you get a hundred different answers. What is the illness? What is the identity? What is the body? What is the soul? You know, all of those things. They're big questions that we each get to answer in our own way. So I'm bringing in my perspective, which is that having a circumstance such as illness or anything else mm -hmm. is a spiritual experience because our souls are having it. And mm. When you live in a body that experiences pain or fatigue or any number of symptoms, you can't really separate completely from that experience yeah. because you're true, in it. True. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's the easiest answer or I don't even think I've provided that much clarity on it. But if anything, I hope I've made it a little bit more complicated for people so that we don't get too broad strokes of ourselves <laughs> or others. <laughs> I think you added more clarity than you think. I My mind is definitely blown. So thank you for that. <laughs> Can I ask, what are some, some do's and don'ts when it comes to uh, trying to support a COVID long hauler with as much empathy as possible? What are some things to do? What are some things to say? So on and so forth. So I'm wondering if I can read to you a response from someone in my life who- I'm ready gave me permission to share this and she wrote it so beautifully that I just don't want to change her words. Cause I feel like she just got it, you know? Um, so this is what I, what I appreciate about her sharing this is that it's an offering to all of us, I think, 
um, as whether you have an illness or you know somebody with illness, I think this is useful for all of us. She said, there's only one thing I want for my loved ones, validation. It's horrible how many friends and family don't seem to believe that what my family and I are experiencing is real. I don't even bother to talk about my struggle with some of my closest family members because they treat me like I'm crazy. I generally only talk about my symptoms with others who have gone through it because they believe me. So, you know, it was painful to read um, this this very real experience that she's having. And I want to also say, yes, so she's living with long haul COVID. She could have been living with any number of forms of oppression. And those words would have rang true, right? Yeah. There's an invisibility. There's an, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely very, very tough to hear. And you're a hundred percent right. Swap out long-term illness with gender, with race. And that's absolutely. And the struggles that we go through. Yeah. That's very real. Gosh, totally. And so in that, I think part of, part of my, what I do with couples and I, this is, to me, one of the most relevant answers I can give you about what are the do's and don'ts is whether it's COVID, illness, race, gender, um, any nut class, all mm-hmm. of the the, ver- the forms, the ways that we can see rank and position and society and power structures, there is a common theme around believing and also understanding one another. Now, we don't have to understand each other in order to believe each other. I think it starts with believing. So when I work with couples, there's this model that one of my couples mentors, whose name is Haiti Schleifer, came up with. And she right, calls right. it, she calls it crossing the bridge. So crossing the bridge happens between two people. And what we do is we think about each person has their own world. So in our case, there's Alana world and there's Lauren world, right? And mm-hmm. between those two worlds, there's a bridge that connects them. And often what we try to do is we try to both come out onto the bridge and have a conversation. And often that comes from the brain and we try to, you know, trying to give each other information or, you know, ask questions, which is great. But crossing the bridge is when one person moves into the other person's world. So it's like they're leaving their own world behind, but just for a little while. And they're bringing curiosity and openness. And they're also leaving behind the need to agree or disagree, but they're just, it's an act of generosity, right? And so they travel and so let's say, this is actually, I feel you doing this with me. You've crossed the bridge into my world several times throughout this conversation and I feel it energetically. And so what happens when you're in my world is I give you a little tour of like one of the neighborhoods. So one of the neighborhoods is like spirituality. One of the neighborhoods might be chronic illness. Um, and, And in that, I actually get to learn about myself because I feel your awareness, your attention, your openness. So it's a gift to both people when you visit my world. And part of what's so sacred about it is you're not looking for the holes in what I'm saying. You're not looking to undermine it, question it, disbelieve it, but you're also not burdened with having to agree with it or disagree with it. You're just here to learn me. And so, and similarly, I can cross the bridge into your world. And that's part of what deep yeah. connection is. Ooh, I love that visual and I love that metaphor because what you're saying is to intellectualize something, you're never actually going to 
open your heart up to be willing to go into someone else's world. And I feel like 2020, um, with all of the racial protests and strife going on last year, I feel like that was a, a bridge crossing year, if you will. Mm. where I feel like you had people open for the first time. Maybe, you know, this, it, maybe it is a byproduct, of, a byproduct of the pandemic and we were all at home and we couldn't go out. So we were watching the news and very glued to what was happening in our society, but really seeing the strife and struggle that African-American people, that Asian-American people have been living with for decades. It feels like it was a bridge crossing year for 20, in 2020. So I think that's the way that I... Uh, Mm. understand uh, the metaphor that you just laid out and I love it I think it's great I think it should just be the new title for this episode quite frankly it's a well really, really metaphor you're what you just described there's like a like a you were gesturing towards your heart a lot like in your core ah. and and I just I could like I had my own little chills when you were talking and I don't you know they were my chills I'm not trying to say like I was feeling your feelings but I was sure. perceiving your, the depth that you were sharing from. And it was just yeah. like, you know, and I think this is a question we can all sit with for a moment is what does it feel like when someone crosses the bridge into your world and you can feel them there with you? You know, it's a mm -hmm. very different experience, at least yeah. in my opinion. Definitely. I mean, podcaster to podcaster, isn't that what we're we're sending that invite out, that initiation to come into our world via our platforms, via our shows. And so That's you right. get that feeling with your listenership when you get the the DMs, the positive reviews, the emails saying that because of your episode or because of your show, I feel seen, I feel understood. So I think yeah. that's a very tangible way that we live it every day. So thank you for that, for, for solidifying that. Cause I don't think I actually realized that uh, in terms of part of the pleasure of having a podcast. It is. And it's part of the gift that you give as a host to every guest that comes on, or even when you and Jack is Jacqueline or Jackie, 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 like I've heard your, your episodes and how you kind of cross the bridge into each other's worlds and how powerful and special that is. And I also want to just acknowledge the there's a bittersweetness to the power of what you described from last year in the racial justice movement and actually feeling like there are more people getting on board who aren't people of color. So white people are actually showing up in a way that maybe we haven't mm -hmm. in larger groups in this way before or that maybe we haven't on an individual level in our relationships that there's a sadness to like it. Yeah, it is really special, but also part of why it's special is because it hasn't been happening and that that's yeah. painful too. And that's part of the complexity of the experience is like, should it be that uncommon that we're crossing the bridge into each other's worlds? And on a racial level, it is part of the privilege that I have to just say, eh, sure. I'm busy or hmm, sure. Yeah. You know, I don't have time for this thing or energy or whatever it is. Right. Hmm. Feels like that should be an, a new like aspiration though for life in a lot of ways though. The willingness and openness to cross over into someone's world and have that be a an MO for life, which makes a lot of sense. And it just feels like that would lead to a very healthy society full of caring human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of my other mentors is Harville Hendricks. He wrote the book, Getting the Love You Want, which I highly recommend Aww. because he and Haiti, who came up with the bridge analogy, worked together and 
that's the kind of couples therapy I do. It's called Imago. So Harville Hendricks, one of the members of his board said, and it shook me. She said, living in a relational society is the next step in our human evolution. Ooh, I, I mean, I love that. And if you think about it, all life is, is a series of relationships that we build from the moment that we're born, whether it's with our parents, our friends, our teachers, our employers, uh, uh, mentors, things like that. Like that's all life is, is a series of relationships. Absolutely. And there's this myth that we're supposed to be these independent, self-made, autonomous, I can do it on my own beings. And interestingly enough, those of us with the most privilege are the ones who say, I got here on my own. And Mm. what we know We know more, we know better, we know deeper than that. The truth is nothing is really created in a vacuum and we need each other. Now, often the more resources we have, the less we rely on social support, Sure. the fewer relationships we may have. Um, And I know we're kind of going into this bigger conversation, but (laughs) I do want to say that there's something about pausing and spending a little more time fostering those connections because we are right now we're not yet there into the relational society. I think we're making strides, but we're pretty individualistic in a lot of ways. And I think when you look at anti-oppression work and working for liberation, that is something that must be done in connection. It cannot happen with just Mm -hmm. one group and not the other with just one individual and not another. So what a relational society would look like is that we're a world full of people who know how to cross the bridge and to know that we can disagree. This isn't about, we all have to agree with each other. It's really just saying, I see you, I hear you. And I believe that there's value in your experience and I care. Yes. I love yes to everything. I love everything that you're saying. I could have this, this larger conversation all day long. (laughs) I'm loving this conversation, but I will pull it back to long haul COVID because speaking of things that we, um, we need to do in terms of relating to relate well and to relate deeply and effectively. There are certain things we can't do. So when it comes to supporting a loved one who has long haul COVID, what are some things not to do or some don'ts, if you will? So one big one is about advice. I think one of our first tendencies when somebody's struggling is to want to tell them what to do. And just that little asking permission, like, are you available or up for a thought that I have or some advice? Do you want it even? And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is actually today, I just need to like joke around with you. <laughs> like I just want to <laughs> hang out <laughs> and like yeah. watch a movie or whatever. And, and understanding that the person in the, the driver's seat needs to be the person with the condition. And that doesn't mean that you don't have needs too, but not trying to take over the process is really important. I love that. I love that. I definitely fall into the category of rest up, buttercup. I'll see you when you get better. And I'm, you're definitely calling me in (laughs) as someone who is guilty of telling someone what to do. And I would assume by saying to someone, you're going to get better soon. I, I would assume that I'm like, giving a feeling of like expediting the healing process, which feels like a fail as well. Well, you know, I think it all comes back to the very simple truth that we don't like to be sick or struggling. And whether it's your friend or you, most humans just want that 
condition, that circumstance to end as quickly as possible. But the, the more nuanced thing is we as humans, it can actually be really uncomfortable to bear witness to somebody else's suffering. And as such, yeah. even if it's not on a conscious level, many times we move away from it. And that's where isolation comes from um, is people going through hard things. Actually, what we need, and I think you know this in your own way, and I know this in my own way, what we need is for people to be beside us in it, knowing that it's unpredictable, it might not get better, but we're not alone. And that's mm. hard in some sometimes when you're not living with illness yourself. It's like, yeah. I'm going to go into the deep, dark cave with somebody like that. That can be really scary. And I'm going to go into the deep, dark cave with someone that I love, that yeah. I want to see in their, their their best, highest possible spirits. I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to be in pain. Yes to everything that you just said. Can we talk about po toxic positivity for a second? Because I feel yes. like that rears its ugly head when it comes to uh, someone feeling like they are doing and saying the right things. They have their intention in the right place. They want their loved one to get better. We're California girls, you know, think positive, positive vibrations, put out in the world what you want to get back, like all of those good things. Um, that's sort of like how California communicates, if you will. Um, I would say that, that West Coasters are nice, but not kind, if that distinction <laughs> difference <laughs> like i think the way of the west coast is to say the the best things that on the surface make the most sense and are the nicest but also might not be the deepest with emotional uh value and outreach yeah i How mean i think the root the, the to put my version of what i think toxic toxic positivity is is focusing on something lovely in service of avoidance right and now yeah. It might not be a hundred percent out of avoidance. It could be like 50% or it could mm. even be like 20% avoidance, 80% <laughs> yeah. just trying to, you know, but the truth yeah. is, so again, in the emotional realm, in the therapy world, <laughs> what we learn and what we do with our clients is provide expansive permission to have all the feelings, not just the good ones, mm. the challenging feelings. Mm. and. I think we're still learning culturally that feelings aren't bad. Um, mm -hmm. I think we can often take our feelings personally. And what I mean by that is we can like wear them as an identity. Like I'm just a blank person. I'm just a joyful person. I'm just an angry person. Yeah. I'm just a sad person. I'm just a blah person. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're also all the other things too. And the thing about sure. toxic positivity and chronic illness is that there's this there's a very ableist mindset that says, if you just focus your thoughts on positive things, your body will follow. And that is one of the most dangerous views, yeah. in my opinion, both on an emotional and physical level. Is it true that our minds affect our bodies? Absolutely. This isn't me saying, saying soothing things won't have a positive impact. But when we, there's, it's very easy to start blaming people for their own illnesses. And that's biology. That's not somebody having a bad attitude. So it's dangerous in the sense that it can actually really hurt people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what you're saying is positive thinking can't eradicate or get rid of cancer or fibromyalgia or some sort of other long term illness. It just can't. That's that's not how the body works. But what well, I also you know, heard you say. 
Some people might, yeah, some people with those conditions might say, actually, positive thinking can eradicate them. So I don't I mean to, okay. right? I don't mean to say that I'm God and I know how everything works, but I do know enough to say it can be really dangerous to put that on somebody else. You can own it for yourself if you want, but Got it. even to, to that, I think there is something there too around giving yourself some grace for the fact that actually we're not in charge of everything. We just mm -hmm. aren't. And yeah. I think that's part of what is exciting and appealing about the idea that our thinking, if we just do enough positive affirmations, will be okay. It can be helpful to people with all number of circumstances because it's empowering. And so it's important yeah. to remember, yes, it does have an impact. And at the same time, it, it can, there's a slippery slope there where we get into <laughs> self-blame. Maybe I have this illness because I'm being punished because I have that one time I took the candy bar or because I wasn't nice to my brother-in-law or because I have a bad attitude or I need to heal my relationship with my parents. I just have to yeah. be honest with you. I'm quite sure that that's not why you have illness because I've known <laughs> some very angry people who have, who have, who have fine bills of health. And I know some of the most spiritual, open, divine, healed people who are living with serious health conditions. Take that toxic. <laughs> I feel you. But also, I, I wanted to say this. There's a, a saying in the black community, you're going to love someone through some stuff. And like, hmm. I've heard that phrase my entire life. And I always sort of, sort of tangentially understood what it meant. But I don't think I actually knew what it meant until this particular conversation. Because what I'm hearing is to truly love someone through something, through some stuff, as, as my mother and father would say, it means to allow them to feel all of their feelings and a wide scope and array of human emotions as they walk through life, either with long haul COVID. So with a new long-term illness or with a long-term illness that they've lived with for the past years, decade or so on. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's something that you don't have to be perfect at and is some of the most advanced stuff we can do weirdly because we haven't been most of us haven't been brought up to feel safe feeling all the emotions sometimes i'll ask my clients what emotions were you allowed to feel as a child and it's a really strange question because it's like well what do you mean well dad was allowed to be mad but the kids weren't and mom could be sad but the kids couldn't but the kids were allowed to be happy and frustrated but that was it so i mean that's yeah. i made up that one but that can happen where our tolerance of different emotions, we kind of learn growing up that these emotions are safe and these ones aren't. Mm. Or I'm allowed to be mad, but I'm not allowed to be joyful. Maybe that wasn't right. rewarded in my childhood. That wasn't actually personal, but you know, that's an example. <laughs> and so our tolerance of emotions within ourselves will often mirror our tolerance of emotion with our friends and family. So just know mm. we're not all supposed to be experts. This is a lifelong journey. And sure. we mess up all the time and that's okay. And just owning it and being like, oh, you know what? I was being really avoidant of your feelings of despair because quite honestly, despair is really hard for me. But at the mm. same time, uh, I get that that's where you're at. And I just want to tell you that you can be that with me. I love that. I love that. And actually, that's a great segue going into our call to action because whether it's long haul COVID, it's cancer, it's MS, it's fibromyalgia, we are these chronic long-term illnesses. Um, they're not going anywhere, whether it's long haul COVID or something else, we have to be able to prepare ourselves to have these conversations with our loved ones. And I know this is a very big ask, but 
how can we prep ourselves for these kinds of conversations? How can we make space to be willing to have these conversations? And how can we, I guess, practice in some sort of way um, for when the time arises to be able to give our loved ones the most empathetic and compassionate support possible? I think to be super full circle and come back to the first thing that you said to me about feeling nervous about the interview is honestly, as much as I think experts get rewarded in certain ways in the public eye, the truth is most of us aren't looking for experts. We're not looking for the perfect friend, the perfect lover. We're looking for connection and knowing that we're not supposed to have all the answers is part of why it's actually quite intimate to be in relationship. We're going to mess up. We're going to be messy. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to try our best and we're going to come back. And knowing, knowing that, giving ourselves permission for that weirdly gives our friends permission for that too. And suddenly it feels a lot safer to be around each other. Mm, I love that. I think that's a really great place to leave this interview. Can we button it there and move Absolutely. on to rapid fire, please? Okay. Perfect. Yes, rapid fire. Yes, this is purely <laughs> for fun. Just so that my listeners can get to know you a little bit more outside of the work that you do. I'm going to ask you 10 rapid fire questions. There are no okay. wrong answers. It's just pure fun and joy. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Yes, I love that one. It got <laughs> me through the pandemic. It was a pandemic recovery. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> yes. What are you most excited to do once the world opens back up to your level of comfort? I realize that it's opening to certain degrees. Hug my niece and my nephew. Mm. What's your ultimate life bucket list item? I didn't think about this one because you sent these to me earlier, but I, I don't know. I think something to do with stand-up comedy. Yep. Ooh. Do it. Okay. Love that. <laughs> What's your favorite form of self-care? Taking a hot bath and watching a fun show at the same time. Oh, so like there's a TV mounted in the bathroom. Sort I wish. Thing. No, it's just really my laptop on a little stool. Okay. <laughs> in my world, that is a TV mounted in your bathroom. Excellent. Good. It. That's exactly <laughs> what I have then. <laughs> What's the last book that you read that, la that left a lasting impression on you? Okay. So one of my business mentors is Rachel Rogers. She mm -hmm. is a black woman who is a multimillionaire and her okay. mission is to help women people of color, non-binary folks grow their wealth. And she does all kinds of mindset work. And she just came out with a book called We Should All Be Millionaires. And I want everybody to read it. <laughs> she, I mean, real deep, powerful stuff. There's a lot to work through. I think even the name of her book is controversial. And that's part of why it's so powerful. I've heard of this book before when it was released. Did she go on a couple of different finance, like finance podcasts and talk about it? It's in release right now. So I was lucky enough to have a little early access to some of it. And yeah, if you go, her website is hello seven.co and okay. it will change your life. I'm just saying I'm dropping, I'll drop a link to this book in the show notes because financial literacy is a, a like a side passion of mine. So I <gasps> very much 
agree and love this. And I've been listening to a lot of financial podcasts and I've heard this book title floated around. So now I have to, 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 this book title excites me. Thank you so much for mentioning it. Uh, You're welcome. Yeah. You know what? There are a few statistics that she has on her website that really shook me. One was that women are 80% more likely than men to be impoverished in retirement. And that on average, a black household in America has a net worth of like, I think it's 17,000. And then a Mm -hmm. white household is 170 on average, 170,000 net worth. These are things that are very real. Very real. Yeah. Um, Thank you for this. You're welcome. I, I think that you've touched me personally. And I think that you have definitely spoken to my audience. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what's the last purchase that you made that excited you? I'm going to be really hashtag basic and say, yesterday I made my first loaf of bread. And you know, it took me a while because everybody did it like a year ago in the pandemic. But the most exciting thing that I bought weirdly was this little cheap little packet of activated yeast yes for the bread <laughs> it's fun it, playing with activated yeast is fun we bought some to to make cinnamon rolls in the pandemic and it's it's kind of cool and you kind of feel like you're back in like biology class i yes. feel you guys not basic but i have to ask <laughs> what kind of bread was it it was literally called the beginner's loaf and it was just flour um you know water yeast salt and sugar it was was it good I have to tell you, it was good. I couldn't believe that I made a loaf of bread that looked legit. Like it really, it looked like a <laughs> loaf of bread <laughs> and it tasted like it too. <laughs> nice. Congratulations. I think if you said sourdough, isn't that technically hashtag basic, but like any other form of bread, I think anything goes. I look forward to the day I learn sourdough. So I just bought this bread course by the same woman who, who Hugh Jackman follows Ooh. Um, her, her blog is called life as a strawberry or that's her website. And so she has this new bread maker. She has a bread making course that is so thorough and there's video. I'm a hype woman for everything that I love. So I'm like throwing out all the links right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just, it's such a loving and, and I'm part of their Facebook community now for this bread making, having made my first loaf and they sent me the most lovely supportive message. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Love it. The dough girls. I love it. Please. I would love to, to follow you and um, stay up on your bread making journey. I feel like you're going to be making like delicious, shiny challahs in no time. Oh, I hope so. I love challah bread. Mm. Uh, what would your last meal on earth be? Something involving artichokes, because that's my favorite food with melted garlic butter. And Ooh. maybe, you know, there's this Parmesan crusted chicken growing up from this one restaurant that I loved. And I think, I think that's what I would have is the artichoke, maybe some mashed potatoes and the Parmesan crusted chicken. I love that. What's a recipe that you cannot stop making in quarantine? Oh, I, several times a week, I make a big pot of masala chai and it takes a while. So it's a ritual. The whole house smells like spices. And I delight in the spicy, creamy goodness. Oh, that's like a full body experience where it yes. feels like all senses are, are enacted. Oh, it's fantastic. And I'll listen to some music that makes me feel like a fancy lady. And it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What music makes you feel like a fancy lady? I just have to know. John Coltrane. Um, there's, a, there's a bluegrass band actually that called Punch Brothers that I love. So 
between those two, I'm like living my best life. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> What's something that you wish people knew about therapy? That it can be fun. And I think we think about therapy as a very serious endeavor. And I laugh with my clients. We talk about joy. We go on creative visualization journeys to touch into intuition. It is so expansive. And that's what I do in my personal therapy with my therapist too. Like I have so much fun. So that's what I wish that people knew about therapy. It can actually be quite delightful. Oh, and also I have had dance parties with my couples in the couples sessions, not all the time with everybody, you know, but when we have enough time at the end of the session, I try to do one little high energy fun. And I'll ask them like, do you have a song that the two of you really like? And we'll put on some music. Because connection not, isn't just about talking. It's like full body. I was not expecting that answer, but the answer <laughs> brings me a lot of joy. Good. That sounds awesome. Who knew that your <laughs> office like double as the party spot? Okay, yes. Lauren, I'll see you. I'll see you over there. <laughs> um, and final question. Bad days. We all have them. What is your remedy? My remedy is to let myself feel my feelings and often by making myself into a human burrito in my blanket and watching a show or, you know, usually there's something called emotional, emotional titration, which is when you let yourself feel the big feelings, but then you take a break by watching like Gilmore Girls or something. And then you feel the feelings again and then you go for a walk or talk to a friend, but you don't have to just dive deep forever. So that's my remedy is to like feel, but then also do a thing that has nothing to do with feeling. Mm, that's a really good action point. Thank you yeah. so much for that. Lauren, it's been really fun talking to you. Um, I'm very sweaty underneath this jumpsuit and sweater. <laughs> that is literally how nervous this interview made me. But I loved it so much. I cannot wait for our listeners to hear this conversation. How can my listeners keep up with you and the work that you do? I want all the plugs. I would love to connect with that. Anybody who felt moved by this episode, if you want to email me, you can go to laurenselfridge.com slash work with Lauren if you want to send me a little message. And then also I have a free creative joy workbook called Living the Dream as You Build It. And it's all about how we don't have to put our joy and fulfillment on the top of a mountain somewhere that we'll someday reach and that we can bring it into our everyday and help us to get where we want to go. So it's a fun, it, it's a fun workbook and it's at redreamyourlife.com. And it's, I call it building your own joy library. So it's support for building a library of things that bring you joy. I will drop links to these in all of the show notes. Thank you so much, Lauren, for being here. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I will talk to you next time, listeners. Bye. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. <laughs>